We had uh, we, we completed a series last week, and this week I am preaching a, a message that is just pretty much standing alone by itself. Um, and just give you a little bit of background of this message. I am probably one of hundreds, if not thousands, of pastors across America today preaching something fairly similar. Not uh, exact, of course, and not the same text and same ideas and same context, but Thousands of pastors are preaching a, a message like this this weekend, and it, it was because it was derived from a, uh, a young pastor in his late 30s, mid to late 30s, with a wife and young children pastoring a large church in California who took his life last week as a pastor of a church, and, um, and it just seemingly from the public eye everything going smoothly and everything going very well and highly charismatic personality, great teacher and preacher and husband and father and was overwhelmed with life in whatever context. And I don't know his situation. I did not know him personally, but his story has seemed to have taken the social media world by storm. So many people commenting, so many people sharing, so many people encouraging and posting. And it's a it caused a lot of pastors, a lot of churches to sit back and evaluate a lot of real issues in life. You know, I remember growing up, not growing up as a child, but growing up in my faith when I was newly saved to hear things like when you struggle with a problem, to talk about it is weakness. Just keep fighting, keep pushing, keep plowing forward. Everything's going to be fine. And so him, like many, felt they we could not be open and could not be honest with how he felt and the way his life was going in that moment and unfortunately um, chose to end it. And so it's a challenging, challenging thought process and, and, and struggle in life, but a very real one, a very, very real one, and not just for pastors at all, but pastors are not excluded from that. For years and years and years and years, pastors have been placed on this place that they don't belong to be, in this, on this pedestal, on this place up here that we look to him or her and say, they've got life figured out. And we put them in this place. And I've always said, you should never put me up on that place because I am six foot two, 245 pounds. When I fall, I'm going to land on you and it's going to hurt it would physically hurt. It will spiritually hurt. It'll hurt in every imaginable way because that's what happens. We place leaders on these pedestals, and then when they mess up, it's the end of the world, or it's the greatest struggle that we've come to know, or we, it becomes this overwhelmingly dramatic thing in our life that rocks our own faith. And so my encouragement for you in that light is understand whether someone is standing up here with a microphone preaching in front of 20, 200, 500, 5,000, 50,000. They are human just like the rest of the world. They make mistakes. They are flawed. And that's part of why I'm as transparent as I am when I preach so that everyone understands and realizes I am flawed just like everyone else, trying to figure out life and do what God's called me to do among, in midst of my, 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 my flaws and my challenges in life. And so this morning, I am going to preach a message entitled, The Process That Leads to Hope, because too many people find that they're hopeless in life, 
or they're ready to quit things that they have been doing, whether it's for God or it's their job or whatever the case may be. They're, they're struggling in such a way that they want to quit. They want to pack it in. They want to say, I'm done. But there's a process that God has laid out that leads to hope. And so I'm going to work my way through this message with some grace from you because there's going to be times in this message that it's emotional for me just because of life events Stories that I hear and read, pastors and people that I know, because I have known a lot of pastors and a lot of friends that have, and not just pastors, but I just happen, being a pastor, I'm friends with a lot of pastors, so it's a lot of my context, but not just pastors, but people who have suffered in such a way that they've lost their lives either to bad decisions and choices of their own or um, things like suicide, and, and, and it's, it's heartbreaking because in that moment, they, they, they felt like there was no hope. And I'm certain that if we're all honest in some way, shape, or form, we've all felt that way. We've all felt hopeless. We've all felt abandoned. We've all felt struggled and strapped to figure life out. And so we're going to preach this message called The Process That Leads to Hope. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read the first 11 verses to you so that you can have some context for this message. But then we're going to spend the rest of our time in verses 3 through 5. And that's going to be it for today. And I, I believe that's it's powerful on its own. But let me read to you what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5. It'll be up on the screen for you as well to follow along. Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Christ Jesus our Lord has done for us. Because of your faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we are utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God has restored, was restored by, by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Well, I, For me, one of the most powerful 11 verses in all of scripture because this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's account, Paul's preaching, and just to give us a little bit of context for today's message, like I said, I read the entire beginning of that chapter. We're going to focus on verses three through five, and so before we do that, I want to look at some important background. For years, man has looked to so many places for hope. We've looked all over the world for hope. We've looked to different religions, and we've looked to different gods, and we've looked within our families, we've looked within our jobs, our careers, and our education. We've looked so many places for hope, yet we've come up empty 
most times. As a matter of fact, there's a woman goes by the name of Gloria Steinem. You may or may not have recognized that name, but this woman was a pioneer of the feminist movement, and she championed women's rights and in a lot of ways, and none of that at all a bad thing, but the one challenge she has or had and still has in her life is she is a self-proclaimed atheist. She's written books on atheism. She said this of faith in God at one time. It's an incredible con job when you think about it, to believe something now in exchange for something after death. Even corporations with their reward systems don't try to make it posthumously. So she has this disdain towards God while even doing something. She said she even hoped that by the year 2000, men and women would raise their children to believe in human potential and not in God. This is a lot of what, um, what this world expires to in hope. They're looking for it everywhere. And as I have looked personally, my personal account, my personal opinion is that mankind itself is morally corrupt, absolutely foolish, and there's thousands of years of evidence to suggest that this is true. Now, people, inherently, there are some really good in people. There are, I, don't, I don't necessarily, I can't subscribe to the, say, oh, that I am good, because even Jesus, when he was called good teacher, said, who are you to say that I am good? Only God is good. So if Jesus looked at himself and humbled himself before God to suggest that he wasn't good, I'm definitely not Jesus. So, but I, you can find good in people. You see it every day. You see people helping and serving one another. You see people engaging in life with one another. So you can find good in people. But as mankind as a whole, there's thousands of years of evidence of foolishness and moral corruption. And so to, to, even for a moment to suggest that we, should, we ought to put our hope in ourselves or another person, to me, suggests even more foolishness. See, I believe the Apostle Paul recognizes this to be true. He recognizes this to be true of the Romans as he is writing this. And if you re read Romans chapter 1 through 3, you will discover Paul sees mankind as being morally corrupt and depraved, especially the Romans. And he's writing this letter to them to suggest that there is another way. And, and in, in the first 11 verses of verse 5, chapter 5, he actually extends and says, this is what living for Christ looks like. And so he goes on to talk about, he argues that people can be justified. This is what his argument is in, his, in Romans, that people can be justified from their sin. They can enter into a right relationship with God and experience the hope of heaven right now. That's his argument in, Rome, in, in the book of Romans. And so even in their circumstances, when their circumstances are unfavorable, even when they're suffering, even when their suffering deepens their, 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 their depression, he's suggesting that there is still hope to hold on to. This reconciliation with God is what brings hope to humanity. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to unpack Three verses, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, 4, and 5, as we under, come to understand what I believe is this process that leads to hope. 
See, we all want to, we all, we all want hope. We all want these magical buzz keywords in our life. We all want hope. We all want peace. We all want love. We all want these things. Yet I think from time to time we struggle with submitting ourselves to the process to receive these things. Because it's not magical. It's not, here's two pills, swallow these in the morning, you're going to wake up with hope and love and peace. That's, that's not how that works. I, I, I wish sometimes it did, but that's, that's not how that works. So let's unpack this a little bit and look at verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read those verses to you one more time just so that you have a little bit more familiarity with this part of the passage. The Bible says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So when you walked in, you got a, note, a little note sheet you can follow with us. You can fill in those blanks. Uh, keep track. This is something I think that is worthy of you looking at again and again and again and again and again because this is not popular life teaching. This is necessary but not necessarily popular. So the very first thing, the very first thing I want you to understand as we unpack this passage of Scripture is there part of the, the very first part of the process is this idea that I, I, I put out there is holding your head high. Holding your head high. Why do we have to hold our head high? Well, let's look at verse number three. Now, today is going to be a whole lot of biblical study for you because that's what this is. This is all I've taken one passage of Scripture. I have defined it in its original text, in its original context, in original language, and then I am giving it to you, and that's meant for you to then work through it, pray through it, worship through it, study through it, whatever it is that you want to do with it. You want to throw it in the trash, by all means, you can do it too because... That's your choice and your decision in life. So here's what it says in verse number three. The very first half of verse three says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Now when we think of that word rejoice, we have this idea of joy. We have this idea of jumping and smiling and laughing and carrying on. And and that's what rejoicing looks like. And I can tell you life is full of difficulty. If you have not realized that, then you've just not lived yet. But life is full of difficulty. Choice after choice leads to more and more difficulty. Perfect example is inside of our families. As we pray for our loved ones, our wives, our husbands, our sons, our daughters, our parents, we pray for them. And I don't mean pray for their healing. I don't mean pray for their provision. I mean pray for their salvation. Pray for God to move upon their heart. We, at, we pray these prayers and we throw them up into the sky and then say, okay, God, it's in your hands. The reality is that's not true. There's a process that God chooses to engage humanity with. So how do you do that? What's the process look like? Well, the first part of this process is holding your head up high in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of these things, in these things. All of these difficult times in life, they lead to one place, and it's a place called suffering. So here's what the word rejoice actually means. It doesn't mean, let me throw a smile on my face, let me fake it till I make it, because believe it or not, that's oftentimes what I would try to do in life, is let me just fake it until I make it. Eventually, I'm going to make it. So if I fake it long enough, I'm going to make it. What I've come to realize, if you fake it long enough, you just become fake. There is no making it. 
And so the word rejoice in this context isn't what you think it might be. Even the King James Version says, we glory in our tribulations. That's really not even a great definition of this word. Because the word translated literally means to live a life with your head held high. That's what that means. Doesn't mean that you always have to be smiling. Doesn't mean you have to always be jumping and dancing and shouting. But you have to live a life with your head held high. It suggests this because you have, here's, here's what you have to catch in this. This, is, this for me was one of the most powerful things that I found in this entire passage of scripture. And I'm giving it to you first. And it might be, this just might be it for the rest of the message. But it suggests that we hold our head up high because we have a vantage point of life that other people don't have. Let me say that again, because a couple of you got it. The rest of you, it's still registering in your minds. So let me give you a, just a second. You hold your head up high because you have a vantage point of life that others don't have. What is that vantage point of life? You see from the perspective the average person doesn't see from is what you see. More specifically, any, anybody who is disconnected in their faith, they don't have this vantage point. Whether they are unsaved, walked away, completely unchurched, whatever the case may be, they don't have the vantage point that you have. Your vantage point is basically, let me find me a chair that I can stand on without falling on my face. Oh yeah, there we go. When I am up here, I have a whole different vantage point. My vantage point is completely different than when I'm standing on that ground. I can see down and I can see if someone's sleeping. And I can see what they got on today. I can see if they match in their clothes. I can see all kinds of things from this vantage point. I can see everything I need to see out here in front of me from this vantage point. When the Bible is telling us to rejoice, it's holding your head up high because you see a vantage point that other people don't see. What's that vantage point? His name is Jesus. Because you have Jesus in your heart, because you have this, this ability to look at life and hold your head high, you see things that, that other people don't see. It's really actually, Paul recognizes it and says it, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He preached that, he taught it, he lived it, and if that's definitely true, that's your vantage point. I may not necessarily, I might be walking through this valley of the shadow of death that some people will call it in the book of Psalms, but I'm walking through this valley. I'll fear no evil because God is with me. It's a vantage point that I have that others don't have. That's why we hold our head up high. That's why we look and have a perspective that other people don't necessarily have. It's this God-given confidence. It's not a self-made awareness or a self-made confidence. It's a God-given confidence. Here's the challenge. When it becomes my confidence, the vantage point is gone because you're only able to see what you're able to accomplish. And let me tell you something, compared to Jesus, it's absolutely limited. We are limited in what we can accomplish in in and of ourselves. When we have the vantage point that Christ has, there's no end. There's no limit to what can be accomplished. There's no limit to what will be done. And it doesn't make a difference what you're facing, what you're dealing with, how painful life may be, the difficult situation that you may be in. Those things, while struggling, while there being an issue here, they are nothing compared to Jesus' vantage point because he sees you He sees you in the midst of your struggle, but he sees what's on the other side of the struggle. That's why when we put our faith and trust in him, we have this vantage point that allows us to hold our head up high. He goes on in the second half of that first part of verse 3. He says, we can rejoice 
when we run into problems and trials. This is where it gets difficult. We can preach about rejoice. We can preach about holding our head up high. We can preach about a vantage point and understanding that there's something past what we're struggling with. But when we're in the midst of that struggle, it's a whole different story. It's a whole different ballgame when you're in the midst of that struggle. And so here's, I'm going to illustrate that just a little bit for you this morning, okay? I'm going to illustrate the midst of the struggle just a little bit for you. I'm going to pull some of you out of there because I need your help. So Maya, I need you to come up here. My daughter, I get to pick on her because she's my kid. You can come up here. You can stand right here. And then I need Marvin to come up here. Scott, come up here. Pat, would you help me out? Would you come up here? See, I need one more. Yeah, Christian. Good call, Alicia. Come on up here, Christian. He don't like you no more, just so you know, Alicia. All right. So here's what we're going to do real quick, okay? I am going to show you this phrase, problems and trials. It sounds bad, but the words problem and trial doesn't even do it justice to what it actually means. So this is what I'm going to actually tell you. The word actually signifies a distress an affliction, a pressure so strong, it actually hems you in. So here's what I want to do. Maya, come stand right here. Scott, stand behind her. Pat, would you stand on this side? Marvin, stand on this side. Christian, stand in front of her. Turn your bodies on the outside to face her. Christian, come on and step on over that speaker. All right? Okay, now, this is, this is sometimes how life feels. All right? We feel kind of boxed in. I can tell you right now Maya's a little uncomfortable because she's got three big men. Around her, like, what is going on? A far, four, sorry, I can't count. You two can preach the gospel. You don't have to be able to count. So she's got four men surrounding her, which is a very uncomfortable position. And one of them's Marvin, which makes it even more uncomfortable. Right? So this is, this is an uncomfortable position. But if we do this, step in, step in, step in, step in, it gets a little bit more uncomfortable. Right? Anybody ever felt like this, that you're, you're, you're a little uncomfortable with where you are in your life, a little uncomfortable being pressed in. Well, see, this is uncomfortable, but you know what? This isn't quite bad enough to describe what Paul's talking about when he talks about your struggles and your tri trials. So step in, step in, step in. Now, here's what I want all four of you to do. Wrap your arms around each other and hold tight and do a little squeeze. This is the best illustration I could come up. Look how awkward and un un uncomfortable she is right now. Now, Maya, you guys, you four men, hold on tight. She's a lot stronger than she looks. Maya, get through there. Come on. You are an athlete. You are a varsity volleyball captain. Get through there. You are a strong young lady. Get through there. Push. Come on, you just played eight, nine hours of volleyball in a tournament yesterday. Push. She can't do it. All right, you guys can go sit down. Thank you so much for helping me. When the Bible says that when the Bible says your problems and trials, it sounds bad, but what it really means is that you are hemmed in with no place to go. You are pressed in with no way out. That no matter how much you push, no matter how much you fight, no matter how much you drive, there's no way to get out of what you're in. That's what Paul is saying. When he says the problems and trials that you have, that it, it literally means that there are distresses and afflictions and pressures so strong that it hems you in. It'd be the equivalent, 
And if I would have had a, a straight jacket, we'd have done that instead. But it would have been the equivalent of sticking someone in a straight jacket, pulling that thing tight, and then walking out and say, good luck. Because that's what the problems of life will bring you. It'll bring you to a place where you are hemmed in. You are wrapped up so tight, there's no way out. That's why it's so critically important to understand when he says you rejoice in those, it's a head held high because even though I am hemmed in, even though I am stuck, I still can see Jesus. I still can see that he's, he's doing something. I can't quite perceive it or I can't quite understand it. I definitely don't always feel it, but I know that he's doing something because he said in his word that he never leaves you. Matter of fact, all the way at the very end of Romans chapter 5 and what we're preaching, he says the Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Now, I don't know about some of you. I know there's some of us that say, oh, I've got a friend, but they're not really a friend because if they do something to stab us in the back or to hurt us or to trick us or to deceive us, then they really quickly become not our friend. But in my limited understanding of being a friend of God, that there's nothing that you can do to cut that friendship. Human friendship is very easy to cut. Just go lie to people, deceive them, stab them in the back, rob from them, cheat them. They'll cut you quickly. We do the same thing with God, yet he doesn't cut us. Matter of fact, he says, I have a plan for you. And it's a hope and it's a future plan. It's not a plan for heart, hurt. It's not to harm you. It's to give you hope. So Paul is saying this. He's saying you, you have to hold your head up high. Let me move on because I spent way more time in that one point than I wanted to. But I needed to. So when you're holding your head up high, man, this is a process, okay? We don't give in to the process. We think that there's just this magical, let me speak it, and now it's done. Now I just got to sit back and wait for God to do his thing. But there is a process to getting to this place called hope. So when you hold your head up high, holding your head up high will produce something in your life. It's going to produce endurance in your life. Verse number three, the second half of verse number three says, for we know that they help us develop endurance. What's they? The problems and the struggles. With our head held high, the problems and the struggles will help produce endurance. This word, here's what endurance, we think of endurance. Anybody run in this place? I have a whole theology of running. It's of the devil. Hey, I can justify it. It's of the devil because anytime you're running from God, it's not godly. I'm just playing. I don't like to run. I like to ride a bike, but I don't like to run. But so it's this idea when you think about running and you think about people who run marathons and they have to have this endurance. They have to be able to breathe through these, these 26 excruciating miles that they are running for some crazy reason that they're doing it. But they have to be able to breathe. They have to have this endurance and they train for it. And that's what we think of. But again, this word literally means to remain under. So instead of thinking of it as like, okay, I'm breathing, I'm developing this strength in my lungs so that I can make it through, again, what are we doing? We are focusing on us and what we think is possible for us and what we are capable of doing. I can go out, and I can't personally, but we could go out and run 
and run and run and run and develop ourselves, develop our lungs, develop our muscles, develop memory in our bodies to be able to endure a longer journey of running. Again, we are putting the weight upon ourselves to be able to accomplish something. But when it comes to life, that's not how that works. When it comes to life, the word endurance literally means to remain under. You cre- it's creating a patient endurance. Notice I said patient endurance. Two words that usually do not go together and a word that definitely is foreign to my vocabulary, the word patient. I don't even understand that. You might as well be speaking Greek or French or any other language that I don't understand when you say the word patient because I struggle with that. That's a big struggle of my life is being patient. But patient endurance, not an endurance that sounds... Here's what patient endurance is not. Ready? Patient endurance is not... Woe is me, I hate my life, I hate the suffering, it's always painful, it's always this, it's always hurting. Why, oh, why is it me? Woe to me, I have all these problems. If you just understood all the problems that I have. Now, what I'm not saying, understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about them. I'm not saying you shouldn't open up about them. Because you should, absolutely. If you are struggling and you have these, these challenges and issues, you need to open up. And if you don't open up and talk to somebody, you're hurting yourself. Bottom line, you're hurting yourself. You're never going to get through because you were never intended to get through life alone. That's why the folks who retreat and go into solitude when they struggle are actually killing themselves. They're defeating themselves before they even get into the battle because they've decided to withdraw from the very thing that can help them, and that's people. Some people will hurt you. It's a a fact of life. Some people will will hear your struggle and then go talk to 17,000 other people about your struggle. This is the reason why pastors and leaders don't open up. Because if I open up and I share something and then 17,000 other people come to realize what I'm struggling with, now what happens? This is why we don't open up. Because it hurts. Because people stab us in the back. People hurt us. But that's not what I'm saying. Because we have to be able to open up. We have to be able to have conversations, real ones, that talk about our struggles, that talk about our pain, that talk about anxieties and stresses and depressions and things like that. They're all very real things but they're all very conquerable as well. Every last one of them is real. Every last one of them has an effect on your life, but every last one of them can be overcome as well. So I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about what, actually quite the opposite. You need to talk about it. What I am saying is this. Don't let that struggle be a continual complaint. Over and over and over again, let me just continue to complain and complain without engaging in the process to overcome what I'm complaining about. Because here's the truth. If all we do is complain and complain and complain and never change, 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 then we are just a whole room of crazy people. The definition of psychotic craziness, doing the same thing over, 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 and over again, expecting a different result, that's crazy. But that's what we do. What I am saying is, and you have to hear me, sir, hear me, ma'am, teenager, open up, talk about these things, be honest, be real, but be ready to embrace the journey, because that's what life is. Life is this journey meant for embracing. I don't always want to embrace my journey. As a matter of fact, sometimes I want to just say, I'm done with this journey, I'm going to go find another one. Because that's got to be easier than this journey that I'm on. And I preached a message five years ago. Five years, I preached, I preached this one message 
in, I think, 10 or 11 different places over the course of the summer leading up to planting this church five years ago. And I, I, God recalled that message back to my heart last night when I was putting some finishing touches on this. And I'm not going to preach that message because I'm preaching this one. But the premise of the end of this message was that it's, it's using the life of Moses and Joshua is a perfect example of it. But people often die and give up right on the very edge of the breakthrough God has for them. That's where they quit, right on the edge of the breakthrough that God has for them. But here's the thing. When we remain under God's presence, which is what endurance is, endurance isn't a physical ability, it's a spiritual discipline. They say, let me remain under God, under his leadership, under his development, under his discipline, under his leadership. leadership. And when he says, I say leadership twice, his leadership first, leadership of a pastor second, because if you're doing life without the leadership of a pastor, you're going to struggle, because it was designed that way. Priests, pastors, all that stuff was a design of scripture, New Testament and old. So what I'm saying is when you place yourself under God's lead and God's reign, that's where patient endurance is developed. And so when you develop this patient, this endurance, endurance will then develop a strength of character. This is where the detachment comes. This is where mankind has become so morally corrupt that they don't remain under anything. Matter of fact, they say, I am above everything. Matter of fact, all things are subjective. If, it's not, if it doesn't hurt you, that's not, then it can't be bad. If I'm not hurting anyone else, then it's fine. Everything is cool. I am my own master. Matter of fact, that woman I mentioned, Gloria Steinem, she suggested that her hope was that people would look to themselves and their own abilities, which means I'm placing myself above any god, any deity of any kind. I'm placing myself above that. That's part of the challenge. That becomes a character issue. Look at verse 4, the very first half of verse 4. And the Bible says, And endurance develops strength of character. Endurance develops strength of character. This phrase means it's a tried and approved character. Approved by who? God, the one we're remaining under. This is the process. It develops a tried and approved character. It's a proof of genuineness. It's tested and it's true. Uh, Have you been tested in life and been shown to be true? Not by my standards, but by God's standards. By biblical standards, have you been tested and shown yourself to be true? I don't know about you, but I've been tested and shown myself to be wrong. Shown myself to be false. And I've been tested and shown myself to be true. This is a journey and a process. There's one, it's not a one and done thing. Matter of fact, when I think about, when I, I, when I think about that, I look at this thing right here. This is the iPhone. Here's what I did not know about the iPhone, which just insu- it, it, it ensures the fact that it's better than all other phones. 30,000 of these, 30,000 of these are put under the most rigorous testing before one ever ends up in the hands of a person. They drop weight on it. They give it to their employees and say, go sit on it. Keep it in your back pocket and sit down. Let's see how it bends, see how it flexes. We've got to create something that is so strong that it doesn't break, but yet can handle some fool putting it in their back pocket and then sitting down in a chair. Fool. 
Do it all the time. It's got to be able to endure that. It's got to be able to hold up to that. It's tested. It's tested in such a way that it's sat on, it's bent, it's got weight dropped on it. Their goal is to figure out every way an iPhone would, could possibly be broken by a customer before they ever get their hands on it. Why is it the number one selling cell phone in the world? Because it's tested and shown to be true. Are there some flawed ones that get out there from time to time? Sure. But as a whole, it's tested and shown itself to be true. Therefore, it is the most purchased phone in all of the world. Can't argue. Can't argue truth and facts. Opinions to suggest you like a phone otherwise is fine, but sales produce facts. More people buy this phone than any other phone in the world. But it's tested and shown itself to be true. That's what Paul is talking about when he's talking to the church in Rome. He's saying that just this endurance, when you go through this struggle, when you go through this trial and you remain under the leadership and the deity of God Almighty and submit yourself to Jesus Christ through the process, you hold your head up high and you watch because you have a vantage point, you're going to be tested and shown to be true. Why is that important? Because that's when your testimony has power. Because let me tell you something, you can come up to me and talk about all day long how you've overcome hope, you can talk, overcome trials to get to hope, you can talk all day long about how what God has done, but if your life doesn't look like what you talk about, I ain't hearing it. I want something real. I want to look and find someone who is where I want to be spiritually and in life, and then say, how did you overcome the struggles to get there? Because I know you had to. That's what I want to say. I don't want to hear some from someone say, oh, overcome, blah, 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 blah. Yet on the other side, you won't even, you won't even get, submit your family to Jesus. You won't submit your marriage to Jesus, your job to Jesus. Instead, you just want to say, I want, I want, I want. It's all about me. I, you can't teach me anything. I'm sorry. That's why, that's why submitting ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that's in the midst of our problem. It's what's going to show ourselves to be tested and true. That's what's going to show you to be tested and true because you've submitted it. See, it's this process. It's not, I'm not saying that it's a fun process. I'm not saying that it's even, I embrace and love every aspect of this process because the truth is I don't. Because it's difficult. But what I know is that it gets me where Jesus wants me to be, which is ultimately where I want to be. So as you are developing this strength of character, this strength of character is what strengthens our hope in Jesus. Why do people get to the place where they're hopeless? Because their character has been beat down and weakened in such a way they've not submitted themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in this issue. Maybe overall, but in this issue, and they end up in a place of hopelessness. But when you're able to walk through this process, this character restores and continues to develop and strengthen the hope you have in Jesus. Verse 4, the second half of verse 4, the Bible says, And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. If we don't submit to the process, we're not going to be able to have this strong hope and this confident hope in Jesus and our salvation. This is, this is translated literally a confident expectation that Jesus holds my heart. That's what it means. To develop strength and confidence and hope and salvation means it's a confident expectation that Jesus holds my heart. 
This is itself a process. If you fight it, if you avoid it, you're going to find yourself in a fight with God. When you think about that logically, how many of you want to fight with God? You know, when you look at another person, you think, yeah, I'm bigger. I'm stronger. I could probably take them. They might be small and scrappy, but I could take them. Or the small and scrappy person say, yeah, they might be bigger and stronger, but I can take them. Don't nobody say that about God. Don't nobody say, oh, I can take them. You know, God, I'm not real happy with where I'm at in life, so why don't you come on down here? Let's, let's throw blows. Let's go to the mattresses. Let's fight a little bit. Let's throw down and see what's up. Nobody says that to God. Nobody's that foolish. I mean, I've had some conversations with God, and I've told him a few things that I was not pleased about, but the last thing I ever suggested is that he should fight me. Just saying. But this, this is what, when we avoid the process, when we, when we decide that we don't want to embrace this process, that's what we're actually doing. We're entering into a fight with God. You're fighting the Creator. The Father, the everlasting, no fight you can ever win. The one who fixed the ultimate fight anyway. When you look at life, you look at the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, here's the thing. At the end of this book, two words are important. Guess what? You win. Flip to the very end of the book, you win. It's a fixed fight. A lot like boxing. Most boxing matches are fixed fights. It's a fixed fight. Serving Jesus is a fixed fight. The devil has no place. He can roam and he can devour and he can tempt and he can distract and he can depress and he can cause you to be anxious. And he can do all these things, but he can't win the fight. That's the vantage point. Remember we talked about that in the very beginning. You have this vantage point. The fight is fixed. All you have to do is endure the best shots the devil can throw at you because at the very end, guess what? The fight is fixed. So the last thing I want to leave, with you, leave you with is this, if my worship team can come up. Yeah, all of you. Before I get to that spot, my last thought and point that I want to make to, to this morning is one thing you have to understand about his process doesn't seem like it, doesn't feel like it, sometimes to think about it, to suggest that it isn't, but his process is flawless. It's flawless. There is no hole, there's no loophole, there's no gray area. It is a flawless process. He even said, his ways are not our ways. Matter of fact, he not only said that they're not our ways, he said they are above our ways. So it's not even just a matter of I'm not doing it your way. I'm doing it in a way you can't even comprehend. So stop trying. Just roll with me on this. Because even when you face your struggles and even when you face our problems, we can be confident that he's walking with us, that he's leading us. And here's why. Because the, very, the fifth and last thing I want you to get from this message before I close it out is verse number five. Your hope and salvation will not lead to disappointment. See, this is what happens. We become so disappointed 
disengaged, that we feel like we have no hope. But the hope of Jesus Christ does not lead to disappointment. Now, that's nothing mind-blowingly crazy because look what the Bible says in verse 5. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. I didn't get creative with this. This is just the truth of the gospel. Why are we disappointed? What is going on in us that makes it so, makes life so tough? What is the cause of pain? What is the cause of fear? What is the cause of anger? What is fueling our reaction to our life? Here's what I feel like one of them fuels the reaction to our life. It's this idea of having unanswered questions. We want to know why. And to be honest with you, church, there's so many things in life that you're not going to know why to on this side of heaven. And honestly, if I can just be very real, on the other side, you're not going to care. See, that's, that's not a reality that we want to live in. I want to know why. Not me, personally, because I already know a whole lot of whys that I don't care to know. But the, the folks that really need to know why, you're not going to have an answer on this side of heaven for a lot of that. And then when you get to the other side, guess what you're doing? You're worshiping. You're in the presence of God. The last thing you're going to want to worry about is why something happened or why something didn't happen. So here, the, how do we combat this then? How do we combat this hurt, this pain, this disillusionment, disillusionment, this withdrawal, this depression, this paralysis? How do we, how do we combat this, this need to feel isolated or insulated from the world? Or how do we combat this cynicism that we face? How do we combat this process that's taking us away from the process that God has laid out? Trust in the appointments of God. If his if faith in Jesus Christ will not lead to disappointment, we need to learn how to trust the appointments that God has made with us. Those that will be kept. The Bible says, though the fig tree will fail to blossom and no fruit be on the vine, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Though the fig tree will fail to blossom, there'll be no fruit on the vine. I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's no fruit. It's dried up. There's this difficult, look at the picture. Dead, dry, barren land with one beautiful stalk of flower coming out of it. That is the process that leads to hope. He says, though the fig tree bears no fruit, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You choose who you make yourself vulnerable to first. We need to, we need to open up to people. There needs to be people in our lives that we can talk about. Let me tell you something. It is not weak to talk. I have been one of the greatest advocates and honestly not even enough for counseling, to be counseled pastorally, prayerfully, professionally. Counseling is a good thing. I actually even believe in healthy counseling. Not just going because I'm all messed up up here, but because I just want to get some things out of my heart and off my chest, and I need someone to open up to. So you choose who to make yourself vulnerable to. That's how you combat it. Choose to be a vic the victor, not a victim. These are choices. 
Yes, the choice is difficult. I'm not suggesting that it's not. The choice is difficult, but choose to be a victor, not the victim. And there is one and one alone who will always keep his appointment. I know I've made appointments that I have then had to call and say, hey, I can't make it. I've made appointments that I have had to say, I'm sorry, but these things came up and I'm not able to get there. But there is one who keeps every appointment he ever makes. And he is the savior of your life. It's Jesus. We look to him for this, oh, this, this, oh, God, save me. But then we don't look to him every day of the week. We don't stop in the midst of our anxiety and our stress in that moment and say, Lord Jesus, touch my mind, touch my heart, touch my life right now. I need you now more than I've ever needed you you before. You have this ability to look beyond the moment, to believe that all things God is working out, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We don't see the working out and we don't see the good, but we've got to know it. And I'm going to wrap this up with this last half of chapter 5, verse number 5. The Bible says, For we know how dearly God loves us, because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. If nothing else, just get that one half of a verse in your spirit. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. I don't know what crisis of faith that you've walked in with this morning. I don't know what struggle that you've walked in with, but I know there's a process. And there's a work for you to do inside of the process. Don't just throw some words up into the sky and expect them to land on God's ears and Him to supernaturally change your situation without you having to do a thing. Because that's not how it works. He uses you in the process. You want people in your household to give their lives to Christ? Get their butt to church. Get their butt to church. In the church, and not just this church. If you have another church, take them to that church. I don't care what church you go to, but get their butt in church. Why? Because the gospel is true and it's being preached in church. Get their butt to church. It's not even an option. It's the hope of the world, is the local church. Find a good, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church and put him in it and let him do the rest of the work. There's a process that he's got, and it's using you to get that process rolling.